Chapter Three of the Goddess of Atvatabar by William Richard Bradshaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. Beginning the voyage. I determined to build a vessel of such strength and equipment as could not fail, with ordinary good fortune, to carry us through the greatest dangers in Arctic navigation. Short of being absolutely frozen in the ice, I hoped to reach the pole itself if there should be sufficient water to float us. The vessel, which I named the Polar King, although small in size, was very strong and compact. Her length was 150 feet, and her width amidships 50 feet. Her frames and plankings were made of well-seasoned oak. The outer planking was sheathed in steel plates from four to six inches in thickness. This would protect us from the edges of the ancient ice that might otherwise cut into the planking and so destroy the vessel. The ship was armed as follows. A colossal terrorite gun that stood in the centre of the deck, whose 250-pound shell of explosive terrorite was fired by a charge of gunpowder without exploding the terrorite when leaving the gun. This was to destroy icebergs and heavy pack ice. A battery of 1,200-pounder terrorite guns with shells also fired with powder. All shells would explode by percussion in striking the object aimed at. A battery of six guns of the Gatling type to repel boarding passes in case we reached a hostile country. There was also an armoury of magazine rifles, revolvers, cutlasses, etc., as well as 50 tonnes of gunpowder, terrorite and revolver rifle cartridges. The ship was driven by steam, the triple expansion engine being 500 horsepower and the rate of speed 25 miles an hour. By an important improvement on the steam engine invented by myself, one tonne of coal did the work of 50 tonnes without such improvement. The bunkers held 250 tonnes of coal, which was thus equal to 12,500 tonnes in any other vessel. There was also an auxiliary engine for working the pumps, electric dynamo, cargo anchors, etc. One of the most useful fittings was the apparatus that both heated the ship and condensed the seawater for consumption on board the ship and for feeding the boilers. The ship's company was as follows. Officers. Lexington White, commander of the expedition. Captain William Wallace. First Officer Renwick, navigating lieutenant. Second Officer Austin, captain of the terrorite gun. Third Officer Haddock, captain of the main deck battery. Scientific staff. Professor Rackiron, electrician and inventor. Professor Starbottle, astronomer. Professor Goldrock, naturalist. Dr. Mary Ferry, ship's physician. Petty officers. Master-at-arms Flat Hootley, First Engineer Douglas, Second Engineer Anthony, Pilot Rowe, Carpenter Martin, Painter Herowood, Boatswain Dunbar. Ninety-five able-bodied seamen, including mechanics, gunners, cooks, tailors, stokers, etc. Total of ship's company, 110 souls. Believing in the absolute certainty of discovering the pole and our consequent fame, I had included in the ship's stores a special triumphal outfit for both officers and sailors. This consisted of a Viking helmet of polished brass surmounted by the figure of a silver-plated polar bear to be worn by both officers and sailors. For the officers, a uniform of navy blue cloth was provided, consisting of frock coat embroidered with a profusion of gold striping on the shoulders and sleeves, and gold-striped pantaloons. For each sailor there was provided a uniform, consisting of outer navy blue cloth jacket with inner blue serge jacket, having the figure of a globe embroidered in gold on the breast of the latter, surmounted by the figure of a polar bear in silver. 
Each officer and sailor was armed with a cutlass, having the figure of a polar bear in silver-plated brass surmounting the hilt. This was the gala dress, but for every day use, the entire company was supplied with the usual arctic outfit to withstand the terrible climate of high latitudes. Foreseeing the necessity of pure air and freedom from damp surroundings, I had the men's berths built on the spar deck, contrary to the usual custom. The spar deck was entirely covered by a hurricane deck, thus giving complete protection from cold and the stormy weather we would be sure to encounter on the voyage. Our only cargo consisted of provisions, ship stores, ammunition, coal, and a large stock of chemical batteries and a dynamo for furnishing electricity to light the ship. We also shipped largely of materials to manufacture shells for the terrorite guns. The list of stores included an ample supply of tea, coffee, canned milk, butter, pickles, canned meats, flour, beans, peas, pork, molasses, corn, onions, potatoes, cheese, prunes, pemmican, rice, canned fowl, fish, pears, peaches, sugar, carrots, etc. The refrigerator contained a large quantity of fresh beef, mutton, veal, etc. We bought no luxuries except a few barrels of rum for special occasions or accidents. Exposure and hard work will make the plainest food seem a banquet. Thus fully equipped, the Polar King quietly left the Atlantic Basin in Brooklyn, New York, ostensibly on a voyage to Australia. The newspapers contained brief notices to the effect that Lexington White, a gentleman of fortune, had left New York for a voyage to Australia and the Southern Ocean via Cape Horn and would be gone for two years. We left on New Year's Day and had our first experience of a polar pack in New York Bay, which was thickly covered with crowded ice. Gaining the open water, we soon left the ice behind and, after a month's steady steaming, entered the Straits of Magellan, having touched at Montevideo for supplies and water. Leaving the Straits, we entered the Pacific Ocean steering north. Touching at Valparaiso, we sailed on without a break until we arrived at Sitka, Alaska on the 1st of March. Receiving our final stores at Sitka, the vessel at once put to sea again, and in a week reached Bering Strait and entered the Arctic Ocean. I ordered the entire company to put on their Arctic clothing, consisting of double suits of underclothing, three pairs of socks, ordinary wool suits, over which were heavy furs, fur helmets, moccasins and Labrador boots. All through the straits we had encountered ice, and after we had sailed two days in the Arctic Sea, a hurricane from the northwest smote us, driving us eastward over the 165th parallel north of Alaska. We were surrounded with whirlwinds of snow, frozen hard as hail. We experienced the benefit of having our decks covered with a steel shell. There was plenty of room for the men to exercise on deck, shielded from the pitiless storm that drove the snow like a storm of gravel before it. Exposure to such a blizzard meant frostbite, perhaps death. The outside temperature was 40 below zero, the inside temperature 40 above zero, cold enough to make the men digest an arctic diet. We kept the prow of the ship to the storm, and every wave that washed over us made thicker our cuirass of ice. It was gratifying to note the contrast between our comfortable quarters and the howling desolation around us. While waiting for the storm to subside, we had leisure to speculate on the chances of success in discovering the pole. Captain Wallace had caused to be put up in each of our four cabins the following table of Arctic progress made since Hudson's voyage in 1607. Record of highest latitudes reached. Hudson, 80 degrees 23 minutes in 1607. Phipps, 80 degrees 48 minutes in 1773. Scoresby, 81 minutes 12 seconds in 1806. Payer, 82 minutes and 7 seconds in 1872. Mayer, 
82 minutes and 9 seconds in 1871. Parry, 82 minutes 45 seconds in 1827. Aldrich, 83 minutes and 7 seconds in 1876. Markham, 83 minutes and 20 seconds in 1876. Lockwood, 83 minutes 24 seconds in 1883. Does it not seem strange, said I, that nearly 300 years of naval progress and inventive skill can produce no better record in polar discovery than this? With all our skill and experience, we have only distanced the heroic Hudson three degrees. That is one degree for every hundred years. At this rate of progress, the pole may be discovered in the year 2600. It is a record of naval imbecility, said the captain. There is no reason why our expedition cannot at least touch the 85th degree. That would be doing the work of 200 years in as many days. Why not do the work of the next 700 years while we're at it, said Professor Rackiron. Let us take the ship as far as we can go, and then bundle our dogs and a few of the best men into the balloon and finish a job that the biggest governments on earth are unable to do. That's precisely what we've come here for, said I, but we must have prudence as well as boldness, so as not to throw away our lives unnecessarily. In any case, we will beat the record ere we return. End of chapter 3